Welcome inside the War Room. Ryan Ray here once again, and today we have on Marshal John Fisher. But first, let me encourage you to drop a five-star review wherever you may be. That's right, every episode I ask for it because it's important, folks. It truly makes a big difference, and we would appreciate you doing that for us. Why? Because every day we're putting out podcasts. I know, it's a logical fallacy or something, but hey. Shoot or shoot, right? Okay, my guest today is Marshall John Fisher, who was born in 1963 in Ithaca, New York, grew up in Miami, which is part of the reason he wrote the book we're talking about today. He's worked uh, many uh, various jobs, I should say, not many, various uh, jobs as a sports writer, tennis instructor. Uh, he moved to New York City, where he received his MA from English in City College. In 1989, he moved to Boston and began to work as a freelance writer and editor. I will link to his full Whole bio, which is impressive, in the show notes at warroommedia.com. But today we're here to talk about his new book, 17 and O, Miami, 1972, and the NFL NFL's only perfect season. Be sure to check out the book, of course. And with that, let's talk to Mr. Fisher. Marshall, welcome to the War Room. How are you doing? Thanks, Ryan. Good to be here. Okay, so I don't know if it's my earliest. 72 Dolphins. I'm born in 85, so I didn't know what's going to allow during the season. Um, but I remember I was, God, I had to be in elementary school and someone was 7 and 0, 8 and 0, I don't know, 9 and 0, whatever it was. Yep. And I was asking my dad, are they going to go undefeated? And my dad said, I don't know. It seems like every year when someone is really good, they end up having to play like Miami on a random Monday night. And Larry Zonk and those guys go down there and get those guys fired up. They beat the tar out of them. So, mm-hmm. no. Whoever that team was, that I was like, what are you talking about? So you talking about the, the, the perfect season. That's my first yeah. memory of ever hearing about the perfect season. And it's always stuck with me to this day because obviously they're still the only perfect team. So, yeah, well, it's funny. Not- it's funny he mentioned that because he's referring to what happened in 85, the year you were born. Uh, I think it's the only time that the, the a late undefeated team got knocked out by the Dolphins. And it was a Monday night. It was Chicago. They were like about 12 and 0. And I yeah. and it's true that uh, Zonka and Kuchenberg and maybe a couple others were on the sidelines that night. Or maybe uh, okay, maybe that was the story yeah. he told me. I just remember something yeah. different. I just remember him telling me something about about that. And so yeah. that's that's funny. So what? Why now? Obviously, seventeen and zero. The book um, is twenty twenty two. It's been some time. Why now? Yeah. Well, I grew up in Miami. I was a nine year old kid during that perfect season, and I think that team made it had a huge impact on everyone living down there, and especially on kids who were growing up. You know, during and, and that was really my first year that I was a big fan. So it made a huge impact. I always intended to write about it. Uh, about 10 years after that season, I, I wrote a short story in college called 17 and 0, which was about a kid growing up during that season. Um, but then, you know, as each anniversary went by, I thought, oh, I should write my book about the Dolphins. And finally, with the 50th anniversary coming up uh, about, three, about three years ago, I got a book contract to do this book. Uh, not just about the team, but also about Miami at that time and about because Miami was kind of a focal point for a lot that was going on in the country in, in 72. So it's about the team and it's about the season, but it's also about the backdrop, everything going on at that time. And, and there's a little bit of memoir mixed in uh, my memories. Um, and so now it's, you know, it's out for the 50th anniversary. Okay. Yeah. So let's go back to 1972. Yeah. Um, obviously the NFL today is a year round juggernaut. Um, athletes make, ridiculous amounts of money um 1972 though i suspect the landscape was a little bit different as far as popularity 
player pay and community influence, but I don't know. So unpack it. Oh, it, it, was a, it was a different world back then. You know, it really was. And in the NFL as well, players were, you know, the, the, the superstars were well paid. I mean, they, if you adjust for inflation, the biggest, the highest paid players were making what would now be about two or 300,000 a year, which is, you know, a nice salary, but compared to what <laughs> pro athletes make today, it would be considered nothing. Right. And then the, the other guys, the, the, Running the mill players, they they were getting jobs in the off season to supplement their income. You know, even in '72. Uh, in fact, even some of the stars. There's a funny quote from Jim Kick. I mean, after they, uh, after he'd already won the Super Bowl in '72, then the, in the next off season, he was interviewed and he's saying how his wife keeps nagging him to go out and get a job every day in the off season, and he just wants to go shoot baskets and drink beers. Uh, so you know, even then, people were getting jobs in the off season to, to supplement their income. And they were, they were more like regular people. They were like, you know, and, and they talked about that, how they, they tailgate with the fans after the games, because they park right in the same area in the orange bowl and they come out to their cars after the games and the people were tailgating and they just join them and have some beers with them. And, uh, you know, they were more working class guys, uh, more, more approachable and, than they are today. I think. Was the NFL back then more a regional sport like college football might be where a local team really gets the community or did it still have that national aura? Uh, maybe a little of both. I mean, the, the team, the Dolphins really did capture their community in, in Miami and really up throughout Florida, you know, in 72, uh, they were still the only major league level sporting team in the whole state of Florida. You know, the four major sports, there was no NBA team, no NHL team, no, no uh, MLB team. It was just, and the only football team was the Dolphins. In fact, when like Larry Little was growing up, he's one of the you know the great Dolphins. When he was growing up in Miami, closest team was Washington mm. in the NFL. So he was he liked the Redskins and the Colts. So, but and and Miami had never been thought of as a, a place that could it was a big enough city to really support a major league team. But the Dolphins really captured the the city, especially when they started winning when Shula came down in 1970, and they really became a beloved institution in the in the uh, city and the, and the players as well. So you kind of unpack what was going on with the Dolphins. What was unique about Miami during this period of time? Well, um, Miami, it was a much, for instance, a much smaller place than it is now. You think of Miami as this big party metropolitan. Uh, it really was not uh, at that time. It was a, kind of a sleepy place. It was families went there for vacations. It was uh, South Beach, which is, you know, in the 80s and 90s became this huge party place. South Beach was just a quiet place full of retirees largely jewish uh it was a place where people went to the beach you know and my family we'd go there go to south beach to go to the beach and there were a lot of old people sitting around on lawn chairs and then families with their little kids uh it was a quiet place and uh and and um there was also this issue of uh, that i talked about of the segregation which was still kind of in place although of course it's now eight years after the civil rights act and uh, it's after the civil rights movement but it was not a place that uh, black players were too happy to be moving to. They weren't very happy when they got traded to Miami. A lot of them said this. They came down. It was like, it was hard to get a place to live except in certain areas. There's still uh, a lot of leftover uh, uh, feelings and, and segregation from the from the 40s and 50s were still there. So it's changed a lot since then. Okay, so I, I didn't realize that. So let's unpack that for a second. When I think of Miami again, 1985 limited perspective on on the city yeah. all the things that you say I also think of kind of the scarface cocaine era which is yeah. probably the yeah. 80s right 
It started right. in the eighties. Yeah. Right. See, the Marriott boat lift in 1980s were kind of changed, really changed the face of Miami. Right. But um, I also think of a very much a heavy Cuban influence, a kind of Latino influence, um, very a diverse city. But what you're saying is in the seventies, um, it was, it wasn't that way. And, and they had some kind of um, segregationist policies that were so I, like, I would have never thought. Yeah. Cause you don't really consider Florida as part of the South. When you think about the South, especially Miami, so right, um, yeah, yeah, this is what this surprised me as I was researching the book because I grew up there, you know, and I, I we moved there in 1966 when I was three, and my memory I didn't have memories of a segregated place or of a lot of racism, uh, um, but of course I was a kid, you know, you're not always aware of these things, um, but uh, and and I never thought of Miami as a part of the Deep South at all. Everyone I knew was from their families came from other places. And that was true to some extent, but uh, Miami definitely was part of the Jim Crow South uh, in the post-war through the 60s. And, you know, even in there, I guess even into the 70s, it, it wasn't policies. It was obviously it was, any of that would have been illegal by that point, but um, it was just by tradition. And uh, there were just areas uh, when players were moving down there in the late 60s, Maybe even 1970, there there were areas where they just couldn't buy a house, even if they wanted to. They just they were not 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 that they weren't allowed, but they was made clear to them that they wouldn't be welcome there. Did sports help break down some of those barriers? Oh, I definitely think so. And I think in Miami, the Dolphins helped a lot. Yeah, um, especially after Shula got there. Their first four years, 66 through 69, uh, George Wilson was the coach and. He took some criticism for favoring white players over black. I don't know how true that was, but uh, certainly the team was segregated. And when Shula came down, he noticed all the blacks were on one side of the locker room, the white players on the other side, and uh, they hung out completely separately. Uh, and he worked hard to change that. Not because he was such a, a great guy for, you know, progress in relations between the races. He wanted to win and he wanted a team that would play as a team. So he worked really hard to integrate the team. And Mercury Morris talked about that a lot. But I think players like Mercury Morris and Paul Warfield and these great black players who I think they did a lot to help the city and and uh, bring it forward. Okay, so Don Shula, um, obviously, I remember the tail end of his career, but I mean, he was an icon. I mean, still is an icon in, in football. Who was he before he got to Miami? Yeah, Don Shula, he's a fascinating guy. I mean, he, and he really was. It's not just hype. He was an incredible coach. Yeah, he grew up in small town Ohio, and he he somehow somehow ended up playing for his childhood team, the Browns. You know, because he, he went to a very small college, John Carroll, but it was near Cleveland. And the Browns coach Paul Brown had gotten to see them play, and he, he drafted Shula, and Shula got to play for the Browns and Colts. He was not a star, but he was kind of a tough player, a tough, smart player. And they said how he was always kind of coaching even when he was playing. He was always watching everything and learning, and he always wanted to be a coach. And uh, he, you know, moved up through the ranks and he became the youngest NFL head coach when Baltimore gave him the job in the early 60s. And uh, he was famous as the, the youngest coach and became known as the best coach in the NFL, even though he never quite took them all the way. They, they had great teams in Baltimore. They finally won the NFL championship, 1968. Uh, but that was the third year that the, the NFL champ had to play the AFL champ in, in this thing they were calling the Super Bowl. And yeah, and they thought, oh well, everyone thought that AFL couldn't compete really. But and there, Shula was the first. The Colts, his Colts, were the first NFL team to lose. They lost to the Jets in Super Bowl three. 
And that was a great humiliation. So when he came down to Miami in 1970, he was still lauded as the, the premier coach, but he was also kind of getting to be known as the guy who couldn't go all the way, couldn't win the big one. And he took Miami to the playoffs for his very first year. And this was a team that had been a losing expansion team. And then his second year in 71, they made it to the Super Bowl, but they got killed by the Cowboys at Super Bowl six. And now he really had this, uh, this chip on his shoulder, the guy who couldn't win the big one. And he became just absolutely obsessed with getting back and winning it the next year. And he was incredibly uh, good at transmitting this fervor to each and every one of his players. And they just vowed they were going to get back and win. They were, they were really a team on it with a mission. It's interesting to bring up Super Bowl three. Um, mm -hmm. People talk about, you know, Joe Namath. And, and, and some people argue that his career is looked at far more favorable because of that win relative to his stats and how good of a player he was in his era. When you talk about one who can't win the big one, it, it, especially today, we, we're quick to label someone, despite the fact it's one game, you know, 60 minutes, you have a limited amount of time, a lot of factors come into play. It's quite hard to pull it off. And it, it's, it's funny to think about that, how much someone can be elevated or taken down by a weird series of events on a, on a certain yeah. subject. Exactly. Yeah. Some people, you know, you'll find so many people who will, who judge quarterbacks by how many Super Bowls they want, but it's not as though they want it and <clears throat> not the team. It's hard. There's, I don't know if there's another sport that's as much of a team sport as football. It's such, the, the plays are so intricately designed with all, all 11 players working together. <clears throat> yes. You have to have a great quarter. Uh, well, you don't have to have a great quarterback to win the Super Bowl. Teams have won it with, you know, mediocre or pretty good quarterbacks, but obviously it's a, the most important position, but yes, you're absolutely right. The name it, although he was a great quarterback, he, he, but you know, he didn't always have great teams. And so he really has had that one year. Uh, and then, and then of course the other side of this is Dan Marino, who a lot of people, you know, considered the greatest ever, except that he, he never quite won the Super Bowl. So uh, that's true. And then uh, name big win against Shula interestingly was in Miami in the orange bowl. Uh, right before Shula came down to become the Dolphins coach. I didn't realize that because when you see that video, it always looks grainy. It almost looks like it's cold weather. <laughs> no, like no, 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 they were in Miami. I didn't realize and that, that. And that's the year that Namath uh, guaranteed a win. And he was just hanging out by the pool at his hotel all week with all his pretty girls around. And <laughs> he was like a playboy. But, but when he was interviewed, he said he guaranteed they were going to beat the Colts. And, of course, that's the famous quote that came true. Yeah, I was thinking about that, not the name of thing, but this last last night, night before last, just it's weird in sports where you should expect your team to believe at the highest level that they're going to win every game, right? Or that they that they're going to win every game. And so it's weird that we get caught up in these guarantees. It's like, well, like shouldn't that's what you expect them to think? Like they're going to win the game on Sunday, just because right. they said it out loud is not really that controversial. Like I don't, I mean, yeah, if they lose, it looks bad, but. Would you rather them say, I'm not sure if we're going to win on right. Sunday? <laughs> yeah. That's absolutely right. I mean, to be to be a winner at that level, you got to believe, you know, you got to have incredible confidence, right? I think what made that so surprising was just that no one thought that Jets had a chance in that game. The Colts were this powerhouse NFL champs. And um, so it was just, even though, of course, he's got to be confident going, you know, everyone's got to be have self-confidence. Uh, people were surprised he would say that out loud when obviously he was going to lose. Right. I remember Jordan, I think, said that when they got on the plane to play the Lakers, mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you don't think that you're going to – if you feel they can beat them, then get off the plane now. A little bit more color to it than that, but something like yeah. this oh, mentality yeah. that winners had. And that's what you said, that Shula 
bestowed upon his players, right? So he he got this obsessive mentality. It's one thing for you to be obsessive, but there's a fine line between you being obsessive and you being ex- inspiring others yeah. to get in that obsession. How did he do that? He was just, he was just had a tremendous talent as a motivator of men. He, that was one of his great talents. Also, his attention to detail, uh, with one uh, one exception, which maybe I'll talk about later. But uh, uh, he he always talked about getting the winning edge, and he was just you know so devoted to his to his job. But he yeah, after that Super Bowl loss, he, he t- the players were all in the locker room just distraught, and he just immediately said to them, "Remember how you feel. Remember this feeling." and make sure you never feel it again. And, and uh, one of them told me that on the flight back to Miami, again, he was going up and down the aisle, talking to each of them, saying a very similar thing. Think about how you feel right now. What are you gonna do to make sure you don't feel this way again? And, 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 the, and the first day of training camp, he showed them, <laughs> they walked in, he showed them films of the Super Bowl and made them sit through it and said, we are, gonna, we are not gonna feel that way again. We're gonna go through and, and Zonka, not everyone remembers, but Zonka insists that he actually said, we're going to treat every game like it's the Super Bowl and we're going to win every game. I don't know if that actually happened, or that, but he, that's what he swears he remembers. Is or was Shula a player's coach? Um, yes and no. Not as much as his predecessor. Now, George Wilson had been the coach the first four years, and he had been a fine NFL coach. He had won the NFL championship with Detroit uh, with, when Shula was his assistant back in the late fifties. But, uh, and the players loved him. He, there's a player's coach. They just loved him. He'd party with them. He'd drink beers with them. They'd sometimes it was too hot. He'd just bring in a big barrel of ice and beer. So that's just, you know, take the day off guys, you know? (laughs) And uh, so they loved him and they were all upset when he got fired, but you know, he wasn't the right coach for that team for sure. And um, Shula came in and they were not happy. He was, you know, First of all, he came in and instituted four-day practices in the preseason because they had a late start due to a strike, and they were just—it was like boot camp—and they they hated him. But by the end of training camp, they believed in him. They—he was like I say—he was able to transmit this feeling to them and 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 their, get their trust. And they went along with his program. They really believed he would make them winners. So he was not the kind of guy that they go out and drink beers with. But they respected him. And in the end, they actually, many of them became very close with him after their careers. You mentioned Shula. You touched on Zonka for a second. But one of the, the things I remember growing up, hearing about the 72 Dolphins, this name Bob Greasy was always attached to it. And then mm-hmm. as I got older, I went back and read the history. I'm like, wait, wait, he didn't even play the whole season. Right. So, yeah. so who was Bob Greasy? How is he viewed and how do they keep the mentality that we're going to keep winning when he gets hurt? Yeah, that's amazing. Um, Greasy was a great quarterback. He was their all pro quarterback. He's now in the hall of fame. Um, despite being not that big and not that strong a guy, not that strong an arm. But uh, what was great about Greasy is first of all, was his mind. He was a great technical uh, technician, uh, tactician. He was a, they called their own plays back then. And he was the master of play calling. But he was also a really great athlete. You know, he, a lot of the players on the Dolphins, it's funny, so many of them would say, I really wasn't that good an athlete. I just made the best of what I had. And it's true that a lot of them, like Greasy, were not as big and fast and strong as other players in the NFL at their position. But they were great athletes. I mean, Greasy, although he called himself not a great athlete, uh, 
he, you know, he starred in, in football, baseball, and basketball in college as well as high school. Cassie uh, Russell was a great NBA all-star. And when he was asked who was the best defensive player he ever had to play against in basketball, uh, college or pro, he said Bob Greasy. So, so that's wow. a pretty great athlete. Yeah. Okay, and and he had a, he had a very accurate arm. Uh, he was he was a great scrambler as well. But um, uh, that season, the one game that my dad and my brother and I got to go to was Game Five in the Orange Bowl against San Diego, and we watched Greasy go down, get sacked, and break his ankle, and they wheeled him out on a stretcher. I remember that so clearly. And there was this feeling of deflation, like oh, there goes the season, you know. But Chula, just that preseason, had brought in his old buddy, Earl Morrill. Earl Morrill was his backup. He played for a number of teams since 1958. He had been, but in, in Baltimore, he had been Chula's backup quarterback for Johnny Unitas. And in 1968, Johnny Unitas was out for the whole, most of the whole year, almost the whole year. And Morrill came in and took them to a 15-1 record in the NFL championship before losing that Super Bowl. So he had done it for Shula before, and Shula brought him to Miami that year uh, to be Greasy's backup, although he certainly didn't expect to get any playing time. But he had to come in in game five, and he was 38 years old. He was seven years older than the next oldest player. He was older than some of the coaches. Shula was only 42, so you know he was, he was right up there. And he just came in. He had such experience and calm, and he just said, oh, that's all right, guys. Let's just keep it going. And he took him to a win there and 11 straight wins. And in fact, he was the all pro quarterback that year. And, uh, you know, but Shula faced a great, big decision near the end of the season because Greasy was healthy again by the playoffs. And in the AFC championship game at halftime, he finally brought Greasy back in. And it was Greasy who won that game and then played the Super Bowl. How does, or how did Earl, that he's passed away, how did he view? his legacy tied with the 72 Dolphins? Well, I think he was very proud. Of, you know, I never got a chance to talk to him. Sadly, he died. As a number of players, uh, you know, he died of uh, he had CTE, from, uh, brain damage from, from playing football. Very sad. But um, I know that uh, I'm sure he was very proud of what he had done for them. And, you know, when Shula came to tell him, because there was a big decision to be made before the Super Bowl, even though Greasy had played in the AFC Championship game, and uh, Shula immediately decided he's going with Greasy. And he went to tell Earl. And, you know, some reporters, even the uh, Dave Anderson of the New York Times, the most famous reporter of that time, referred to him as a, <clears throat> as a career backup or as a natural backup quarterback. And he did, certainly didn't see himself that way. Uh, he had started more than half of the 200 games he played in. You know, and he'd won so many great games as a starter for Baltimore and Miami. So he had a lot of pride. Uh, and, but when Shula told him, he said, you know, I think I, I've done my job this year and I think I deserve it, but whatever you say, I'll go with, and I'll support the team. And, you know, he was a good team player. Yeah. I mean, because that's gotta be what, well, when I think about his legacy, you, again, you, most people think Bob Greasy and, and then you yeah. to realize, oh, he wasn't actually the one who won most of the games that year. I think he, he won right. one six or seven and he won 11. He probably ended up, I guess, five. Yeah. Well, only seven of the 17. Yeah, <clears throat> that's true. That's true. But so, of course the next year when they were, yeah, they were even actually a better team, even the next year, even though they lost a couple and they won, they, they blew away all the playoff and Super Bowl opponents and greasy went all the way that year. So, right. 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 So you kind of, you got kind of pads it a little bit more. So yeah. Shula 
going through these things with Greasy Moral, um, did the players just think about a different era? Was there a the camaraderie where the players were like, okay, hey, we're we're ready to trust Shula through thick and thin, or did did you get a sense writing the book that maybe there was some doubt about um, the big game decision making a switch in the big well the second biggest game at that time? Not at all, not in the slightest. They really trusted Don Shula. Um, they and I think even there was even a quote from Greasy after that decision saying, "No one's going to question this decision. They might question Don about." other things but not about football decisions they have and that's true there's not even though they loved their own they loved you know i mean i don't know if they loved bob greasy he's kind of an odd character he's uh kind of standoffish very quiet a little introverted uh, he did have some good friends on the team they were people more like him but but uh he was not i wouldn't call him a, a beloved teammate but but they loved what he did for them you know, they, they trusted him completely as quarterback they loved Earl Morrow. He was just a good old guy, you know, and he got along with everybody and they loved Earl and what he had done for them that year. But no, no one expressed the slightest doubt at Shula's decision to bring back Greasy. Um, after all, he was an all-pro quarterback as well. Great quarterback. So what's it like in the city getting to the playoffs in the first game? Were they played two games back then, I guess, for Super Bowl? Yeah, two, two playoff games. Yeah. Two playoff games to win the second game, preparing for the Super Bowl. What was the city's feel leading up to the Super Bowl? Well, it was, a, it, it, they were, you know, euphoric about what the, about the season. I think a lot of people just had gotten this feeling that they couldn't lose, you know. I know as kids we did, of course, we were, you know, when you're a kid, it's like, of course they're not going to lose, you know, how can, but, and uh, I think maybe they had, they felt that way too. They felt somewhat invincible. Now they, this year, as opposed to the next year, in 72, they had two very close playoff games. Uh, in fact, the first one against Cleveland, they came out very flat. Maybe they were a little nervous because now a loss didn't just ruin the record, but it ended the season. You know, they came out very flat against Cleveland, and, and it was not a great Cleveland team. It was a solid, but not a great team. Um, and they had to come back and win in the second half of that game. Uh, and then they had to go to Pittsburgh. That's the crazy thing. They were 15 and 0. They had to go away and play an away game for the AFC Championship game because back then the Home field didn't go to the best record. They took turns. The divisions took turns hosting that championship game. So they had to fly up to freezing. Uh, it wasn't that cold that week, luckily. But they had to go up to Pittsburgh and a very hostile crowd, famously tough crowd to play in front of. And they won a, a close game there as well. But uh, by that point, <clears throat> you know, it was just absolute euphoria in Miami. They, 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 every time during the season, Bigger and bigger crowds were showing up at the airport when they flew back from away games. And at this point, it was like 10 or 15,000 people who they show up at the airport when the plane landed. And they had to bring it to this different special hangar just for them. And they set up this area outside where the crowd could congregate and the players would come out and wave and say a few words. And so the crowd, the city was going pretty nuts for them at that point. Uh, and they, there was no doubt they were going to win the Super Bowl, even though after all this, they were still underdogs in the Super Bowl. Did you ever get to go to the hangar and watch them come in? No, I know. My dad did not like big crowds. <laughs> he took <laughs> us to one game. He he preferred, he loved the team, but he preferred watching or listening on the radio. You know, the home games, we had to listen on the radio, even though they were all sold out. There was no blackout lifted back then. Oh, yeah. Well, that, that's funny because, like, for, for me, I grew up, um, you know, cable and stuff like that. But we listened to a lot of games uh, because, you know, cable wasn't what it is, obviously, today. Yeah. 
you know, until we'd listen to our team on the radio, um, you know, the Saints, um, when they're playing on yeah. WWL or whatever it was. And so I've listened to yeah. a lot of games growing okay, up on yeah. the radio. Yeah, it's kind of fun, and especially I, when you have no choice. <laughs> yeah, I think it's um, it's it's interesting. I was listening to a game last night coming back. Uh, I had to go to Houston for something. I was coming back, and it was the Steelers game. And the one thing that I've noticed is when I listen to radio calls now, I'm far more aware of what they're not telling me because when you consume the game on TV, yeah. you're immersed in stuff. It's like I was like, how much time is the clock? Like this time we did how many time outs left? Like there's right. just whereas you know, maybe 10 years ago I would have thought about it as much, but the, the the immersive experience of the TV is kind of um I, I still like listening to games on the radio, but it is it is has changed where it's like, oh man, I can't I need I need to know what's going on exactly. Like okay, yeah, well it's funny because we're in this information age and now on the TV they give you so much information. You always see the clock, you always see how many timeouts, everything. And uh you know, they you, they use this huge screen that you have. Mm-hmm constantly give you information which even when watching on television back in the 70s and, and probably 80s and 90s um there was you, know, you never saw the clock right you, you always even then if you're watching on tv you'd be wondering these things well there wasn't a first down marker until what 20 10 20 years ago something like that the, the yellow line so i mean that <laughs> oh on the screen yeah of course yeah yeah so you'd go that up still and, looks weird to me <laughs> how close are they what line was it where they start at you know so yeah oh yeah yeah it's, it's it's just it is it is funny how you um you know as things develop you kind of reflect on on all this and so f- from your perspective you said you're nine i think what was it like at school is it was it a week then or two weeks before the super bowl it's still two weeks yeah so two weeks what was it like those two weeks leading up to the super bowl well um yeah i mean we my friends and i were all excited i remember i i distinctly remember the last regular season game and I I talk about that in the book a little um that Saturday it was a Saturday game and uh and I write about that because I we had I was taking piano lessons and we had our teacher held scheduled her piano recital end of the year right during the game so (laughs) uh I remember all the dads were in the back room listening to the game as a home game and uh and we'd be back there waiting for our turn and listening to the game with them uh, so there's a you know a lot of excitement. Everyone was just we you know to like again to the kids, it seemed inevitable. Of course they're undefeated, you know, that they're they're our team. I mean, you know, and we'd never seen them lose. I mean, I had not that was the first year that I really paid attention to every game. I became a big fan, I guess, the previous playoffs when kind of following my dad and my brother. And this year I was I was totally into it. And uh, yeah, they won every game, of course. And just it didn't seem that amazing or shocking like it might as to an adult uh we sort of took it in stride but we were all really uh, that's all we were talking about for sure it's funny the other thing thinking about listening to games on radio with my family or my dad or whatever is it's a it's a totally different feel but for the people in the room because you all have to be really quiet because if you start talking you, right. you could miss something and so right, right. it's a completely different experience it's oh, just yeah. I imagine that back room, they were all, I, I, I get this picture, these men are sitting there like in absolute silence until a, like a touchdown happens, then they might erupt and then get quiet really fast again. Yeah, yeah. and also that was the game where Mercury Marsh was trying to get 1,000 yards and um, Zonka already had it, so they were trying to become the first team to ever have two runners with 1,000 yards and he had, he, he came so close and they were, they were you know, one guy, one dad was like relaying the news. He's got you know forty more yards to go, thirty more yards to go, and uh, of course uh, the famous story. I mean, what happened is that he ended up 
seven yard or nine yards shy, 991. He didn't make it. But then the, the officials a few days later were looking, they were reviewing all the plays, all the calls they had made. And they found that a call was made wrong in, in game six against Buffalo. It was called a lateral instead of a fumble or something. And uh, Mercury Morris had been charged with a nine yard loss. And that was not his because he had never actually touched the ball. Oh. And uh, so he got nine yards back and he ended up with a thousand yards. That, that, that's interesting because just thinking about the film, watching film back in, you know, this era, it was probably a lot more cumbersome than it is today. So, probably, yeah, well, they, you know, of course, the officials had all the game films and the other. No, I'm just saying just compared to having a computer stop. Go stop oh, yeah. No, they're looking through on reels. Yeah, yeah on reels. Real, real probably. <laughs> Man. Oh, there is such a nostalgia about sports during this time as you talk about it. Um, you know, but I suspect if we were to sit down and watch a lot of games, not an occasional game today, would the modern fan be entertained by that era of football? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I I don't know how much of it is nostalgia or <clears throat> you know, you never know if things really were better <laughs> back then or if it's nostalgia. But when I watch and look at an old game, and of course I watched all these games from the season, I loved it. I I enjoy that more than watching a game now. And even though I know exactly what happened, I you know, I just love it. And I've heard a lot of people say that the game, something was better about it back then. I don't know. It was more, more real. It wasn't so slick. It was good these real guys. I don't know. I think a lot of it actually is nostalgia. Things change, of course. Uh, I do think, though, that, yeah, I think um, football is football. I mean, so, yeah, I think, I do think even someone coming from today would, can, can enjoy that old game as well. Now, you have to enjoy the running game a little more. Like if you're someone who just likes the passing game, there's a little lot less of that. But I actually, because maybe because I grew up with this team, I love running teams because the Dolphins were a running machine and they ran 70% of the time that year, you know? And uh, so even today, I love watching a team that runs the ball and controls the clock. And I, and I clearly it's because of, you know, having grown up with this team. It, which is funny to hear you say the 70% number. I didn't realize that. Because when I think of Shula, I think of, of course, the 72 Dolphins, but I also think of Dan Marino. And then by that point, yeah, they're, right. they're, they're throwing deep passes, and, you know, it's, it's a completely different offense. Oh, yeah. A lot of people kind of assume that Shula was a, a run guy, you know, because that goes great teams. Where they ran, I mean, Greasy, although he's a great passer, and they had Paul Warfield, maybe the greatest receiver of all time, and, and other good receivers, but he threw very little. The next year, he threw even less in 73 in the – Playoff games and the Super Bowl, he threw about six passes a game. It's incredible. They could just run the ball on anyone. And they had an amazing offensive line, great runners, and they just love to slowly pound it down the field. But you're absolutely right. With Shula, Shula was great at doing the best with what he had. And, and in fact, when he was in Baltimore, he had Johnny Unitas, and they threw the ball a lot. And then, of course, with Dan Marino, a huge air attack. So he was good at uh, making the best of what he had. Yeah, and that's, I think, you know, I remember growing up, um, you know, playing football and then watching football. Um, and playing football, um, you know, the coaches, a lot of the stuff that they would say, there was a local college nearby that you know, it was a very small D1 school. Um, and they brought in a guy by the name of Gary Croton. And they brought him in. He really changed. I don't know where he got the where he was copying from because they're all copying from someone else, but he really changed how this team played. 
and they spread it out five wide, you know, bubble screens, all this kind of crazy stuff that you weren't really, this would be 97, 98, right? Um, and it's, it, it was quite obvious what he's doing. He was trying to level the playing field because, you know, having five really good defensive backs is, is kind of hard. Um, but four big line cloggers, <laughs> a lot of teams can have those. And so by spreading it out, he was trying to balance the field. Uh, and it was, it was pretty effective for this school um, relative to what they'd had in the past. And I remember talking to my, my high school coaches going, you know, we're going to pound it down their throat. Well, these guys are twice our size. We're not pounding it anywhere. We're getting pounded is what's happening. Yeah. And so it, it feels like going back, you, you hear someone like Shula, who's kind of moving through the different players um, he has and adapting his scheme. Um, I've often wondered why more coaches don't have that mentality. Because to me, that would seem to be, if you can pound it, you know, like you take like Nebraska football. Well, they could pound it down everybody's throat until they couldn't. And then they couldn't, and now they can't, and now they're behind. And so it's, it's really weird that more coaches don't have Shula's philosophy where if you can pound it, pound it. And if you got spread it out, spread it out. I don't, what, what made him unique in that regard? Well, I don't know. I mean, but yeah, obviously you got to be, uh, if you're, if that's all you can do, and then you can't come from behind. And I was uh, just thinking of a team recently uh, that uh, is great at, uh, when they're ahead, but they don't have a great passing team and uh, passing game, and so it's hard to come back. Now Miami, even when they were running the ball all the time, they, as I say, they still had a great quarterback and receivers, and they 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 could have had the number one passing attack if they'd wanted. I think they had such talent at every position, but uh, yeah, that's what you want, of course, is to be able to do anything and then adapt to what is needed, right? Well, I'm more I'm more saying that you're saying that with Unitas and Marino, he ran yeah. one scheme. And with Greasy and Zonka and those guys, he ran a different one. But what, yeah. what I don't, I see that maybe now it's getting a little bit better. But just growing up, the coaches kind of were more singular focused. We're going to run the Veer. We're going to run this. This is who we are. We're going to create this identity, right, regardless right. if you had the players to create that identity or not. And you're saying that he wasn't like that. He would. Take I agree. It. Yeah, I agree with you. That is a great was a great uh, attribute of his is that he didn't. It wasn't about him. First of all, it wasn't about his style. You're going to play my style. It wasn't that at all. He absolutely worked with what he had, and you know he he could he could certainly see the talent he had in certain positions. What's interesting though, it, 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 with the '72 team, '72 and '73, is that they probably could have done any kind of style of playing, <laughs> um, but they were just so dominant with the offensive line and the runners that you know he just, he just let them do what he let them do that, and that was uh, that was brilliant in its own way. So after they win the Super Bowl, um, what, if anything, changed between the relationship between the Dolphins and Miami? Well, yeah, I mean, they'd gone, you've got to first of all realize how quickly they'd gone from – they didn't exist until 1966. That was their first year. And the first four years, they were losing teams, as, you know, as to be expected, from an expansion team. And then all of a sudden, they were good, and, and you know, and people just loved them. And then they win the Super Bowl and win another one. and. Uh, it looked like they were going to win four or five in a row. They were they were so good, but then things kind of fell apart in '74. Although they had a very good team, they the the big three, uh, Warfield, Zonka, and Kick had already before the '74 season had uh, signed with the World Football League, this new league, and for a million dollars. And so everyone, we all knew they were leaving. The best, you know, not the best, but the biggest three names were leaving after that season. And uh, so things really, that's when things changed. And uh, 74, you had that hanging over them. Plus they had this just uh, 
painful, painful playoff loss to Oakland, the Sea of Hands game in 74. And that was the end of the golden age, you know, for the Dolphins. So I think uh, things changed quickly. They won the two Super Bowls. They were just absolutely, the whole city was on top of the world with this team. And then uh, sadly in 74, things kind of went bad. And after that, they, they were never the same. What was your most surprising discovery writing this book? Hmm, that's a good question. Uh, well, there are a few things. Uh, one thing was the segregation that I talked about when, when researching that. I was really was surprised to see what life was like in Miami when I was there, but I was too young to know about it. Um, and then, but also uh, little things about um, how Mercury Morris had really played very little his first three years, even though he was the, one of the greatest college players. It wasn't until 72 that he finally got his playing time. That, that was a surprise to me. Uh, but the one thing that sticks in my mind is that something I discovered, which uh, and I think I alluded to it earlier in this talk, um, Gary Premian, uh, well, what I was talking about earlier was that Shula was such a master of detail, attention to detail. But there's one thing he missed. And, the, the, you know, in the Super Bowl seven that year, the one play that everyone remembers is Gary Premian lining up near the end of the game to kick a 42-yarder, not that hard for him. He was a great kicker. And it would have made the score 17 nothing for, you know, 17 0 for a 17 0 season. And uh, Joe Robbie, the owner, was saying that on the sideline. He goes, he's going to make 17 0, 17 0. And he, everyone remembers this play because it was so crazy. He kicked it into his lineman. It came bouncing back. Instead of falling on it, because they were up 14 nothing with two minutes left, he picked it up. He, he actually grabbed it away from Earl Morrill. It was going right to Earl Morrill, the great quarterback, because he was the holder. And Garrow grabbed it and tried to throw it. And the ball went straight up in the air. When it came down, he made it even worse by popping it back up like a volleyball. Finally, Mike Bass of the Redskins grabbed it and went for a touchdown. And suddenly it's 14 to 7. And, you know, that's the play that has lived in infamy. And uh, it's the play everyone associates with that Super Bowl. The crazy thing is, I discovered while watching all through the games, is that just two months before, they were playing on a Monday night in the Orange Bowl against St. Louis. Not a great team. They were winning pretty easily. But Garrett did the same thing. He kicked the ball. It was blocked. It came back to him. And he did the same thing. He didn't, instead of falling on it, he tried to throw it. And it went nowhere. It fell to the ground. And in this case, everyone just jumped on it. It was a pylon. And so the other team just got the ball. But it was very surprising to me that Don Shula didn't, see that and go you know that's never going to happen again and he I, I would have thought he would have had garrow practicing every day 15 minutes mm -hmm. fall on the ball fall on mm -hmm. the ball but he didn't do that and just two months later it came back to bite him and you know it could have cost him the super bowl wow <laughs> that is that is yeah. a crazy story because yeah it's it, well that's the beauty of sports like something mm -hmm. is something like that can actually change between a 17 and 0 and 16 and one. It's a lucky for them. There'd be no book. I'd have no book this year. I'd be writing about something else. Yeah. <laughs> lucky for them, they didn't. Okay. Um, obviously, we're going to point to the book on Amazon, your website, social media, anywhere else you want to send people to. Uh, just, you know, if, hopefully your local bookstore has it. If not, I'm sure they can get it. Wherever you like to buy books, it should be available. Uh, I would hope. All right. Well, enjoyed this. It was good uh, going down memory lane. Where are these old games at? Because I'm, I, I want to go watch them now. I can't even think of, is this on the NFL package or on YouTube? Uh, no, a lot of them are on YouTube. You know, not all of them, but some are. The, uh, 
you can see, uh, uh, for instance, game five, the one we went to, that right. most of that game is on, on YouTube. The whole Super Bowl, you can watch the entire Super Bowl, and then you can watch parts of other games. Uh, so there's actually quite a bit uh, in Toto if you, if you search for it on, just on YouTube. Yeah, I remember looking for some old games on the NFL's, mm. whatever their online forum is. And only back like the 2010 or 2000, I thought, man, where are all these old games? Yeah, yeah they don't give much. You got to go to YouTube. And, I, and it's, I'm surprised actually there's not much there because the NFL is very proprietary. And I'm surprised they've allowed that much. And uh, I hope it's still there. I don't know. When I was researching, there was a lot there. Okay, NFL, put it on your streaming service for people who are already paying for your service to go yeah, watch it. Right. Or put it on YouTube. Either way, you can run ads <laughs> on them. Okay, come on, people. All right. Marshall, thank you so much for your time today. Really enjoyed this. Brian, it's my pleasure. Good talking to you. Okay. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Marshall. And always check out the show notes at warroommedia.com. And we'll be back tomorrow.